So in our sermon series through the Gospel of John, we're this evening to verses 41 through 51 of John chapter 6. So John 6, beginning at verse 41. Let me read this section of 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There are several reasons that account for the decisions that we make. Some decisions we make are forced upon us and we feel like we don't really have a choice. When, for example, your employer assigns you a duty that you do not like to do, you do it anyway because at least in part you don't want to lose your job. And in a case like that, you may feel like you don't have a choice, but actually you do have a choice. You have the choice to do what you're told or be fired. And if you desire to be employed and and, and, and want all of the benefits that belong to that, these things compel you to do what otherwise you don't want to do. At the same time, to be forced to do something because of a threat of something negative doesn't feel like a free decision. Such decisions remain a matter of the will, but we don't like to have to make decisions between two undesirable choices. This kind of a forced decision feels like coercion. On the other hand, some decisions that we make feel much more pleasant and feel more free. We have no problem deciding to eat ice cream or to spend time with friends. In these instances, we feel like we're not even really making a decision because what we are deciding to do is desirable. These are decisions where what we decide to do, we decide willingly and even gladly. In the end, decisions are based on what we believe is going to benefit us or that is at least going to present the fewest problems or disadvantages. At the same time, it's possible to choose something that is not the most beneficial to you because your understanding of the situation is skewed. For example, you may think that it's beneficial to eat candy on a regular basis because it tastes so good, surely it must be good for me, when the reality is that sugar is not good for us. In other words, it's not true that we can trust our taste buds to direct us to the healthiest foods. But maybe we think that, and if we do, we are going to make poor food choices with consequences for our health. And so, in that case, it would be to our benefit to get some education on healthy eating. And once our understanding changed, and we understood how good particular foods are for us, then we might eat them willingly. Well, spiritually speaking, people make decisions based upon their understanding of spiritual things. 
Again, they make decisions based on what they think is going to benefit them. No one likes to have to make a decision that pertains to this earth or to spiritual matters where they're forced to do what they don't really want to do. And one of the questions that is answered here in our text is how and why people choose to believe on Christ. And what stands out is that there is no coercion involved. Many people don't rightly understand who Christ is and the salvation that he offers, and consequently they're not interested in coming to him. And the fact is they will never understand these things in a right way except for God changing their understanding. Some people think that if coming to Jesus for salvation requires a sovereign work of God, as it does, well, then the decision to believe in Christ must involve coercion. But what our passage clearly teaches is that God makes the sinner willing to come to Christ. And this is not coercion. For God to change your understanding of Christ so that you embrace him as Savior is to enable you to choose something that is immensely beneficial for you. And otherwise, you, you, would, you would miss out on. That is not coercion. That is grace. In the section of the verses we are considering this evening, we're still on the theme of seeking the true bread, who is Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And our outline for this evening consists of two points. The first point and the main point for this evening is how. That is, how is it that people come to seek the true bread? And while we have already considered in the previous verses something of the why or the motivation for seeking life from Jesus, here we are presented yet again with some reasons for why we should willingly and gladly go to him. So we begin with how. The text begins here with commentary on what the Jews thought of Jesus and of the statements that he has just made about being the bread of life. The Jews mentioned here may be members of the synagogue of Capernaum, or as it is usually explained, these Jews are probably the leaders of the synagogue of Capernaum. And we are told that these Jews grumbled about Jesus, and in particular, they grumbled about his statement, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This summary statement of Jesus' words indicates that they finally understand what Jesus has been saying about himself in relation to bread. Remember, originally they were thinking that he was talking about earthly bread. They hoped that he would continue to give them earthly bread. And they were not realizing that the true bread that the Father gives, which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, is actually a person, him. Finally, they at least know what Jesus is saying. They at least now have heard him correctly, and they are wrestling with the fact that he is claiming to be the bread of life that has come down from heaven, which means that this bread is of divine origin. And yet by this grumbling, we understand that they are not accepting what he has said. This word grumbling refers to murmuring and whispering that is in a low tone. This word is used of people conferring together secretly. And usually these grumbling people, they are discontent, they are angry, they are complaining. And so it's likely that if you had been there and had witnessed these Jews, you could have figured out from their faces as they whispered together that these people were not happy, even if you couldn't hear exactly what they were saying. Even if we wouldn't have known what they were saying, Jesus knew. He knew their hearts. He knew what they were saying. And he must have informed John, who wrote it down for us, 
Their grumbling concerned the words of Jesus that he is the bread that came down from heaven. And their actual words of grumbling are recorded there for us in verse 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And so the content of their grumbling is this questioning of how Jesus can rightly say he has come down from heaven when they know his parents. And presumably they knew him as he grew up there in Nazareth in the area close there to Capernaum. Specific mention is made of his father Joseph. And the spirit in which these questions are asked is one of scorn. They have known him as a child. And now he is going to claim to have come down out of heaven? Who does he think he is to make such an outrageous claim? It may have been that in his saying he was from heaven, they rightly understood he was claiming to be of divine origin, and yet they regard him as a mere man. It's clear from their grumbling that they have no understanding of his virgin birth. They have no, no understanding of what John has said, that he is the divine word become flesh. Surely at the very least, they understood him to be claiming to be sent by God. And uh, Ryle in his commentary points out that perhaps they would have accepted such claims had he been wealthy and powerful and had come with mighty armies. But as he was the opposite of someone powerful and, and wealthy in, in earthly terms, having grown up in a lowly family from Nazareth, with all of this, they were offended by his claim. And Jesus responds to their disdain by telling them to stop grumbling. And we can understand that, right? He is essentially telling them, stop your gossip. Stop your complaining. And yet what, not, what is not as clear is the connection to then what he immediately goes on to say in verse 44. So the flow of thought, notice verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why would their inability to come to Jesus be given as a reason to stop their grumbling? Well, I understand Jesus to be saying, stop the grumbling, and there's an implied because. Stop the grumbling because your whispering about me as being unworthy of your faith is only going to harden you in your unbelief and ensure that you don't come to me. Jesus is indirectly telling these grumblers that the only reason they have rejected his claims is because they think they know better than he does what is going on. They are pridefully insisting that they have the capacity to evaluate what Jesus is saying and that they are not going to put their trust in someone unless it makes sense to them according to their logical categories and reasoning. And so this is their way of saying that they trust their ability to understand spiritual matters and to make wise decisions for themselves. And Jesus, to the contrary, sets them straight that they are never going to come to him. Indeed, they are unable to come to him. They can't come. It's a matter of inability because such coming only takes place when the Father draws them. In other words, guys, you can stand in judgment over me using your own wisdom and intellect and reason, and you will never come to faith in me. It's not possible because people only come to faith in me when the Father draws them. And so I'm not surprised by your grumbling in which you reject me. But understand this, you are not able to sort this matter out on your own. So you might as well stop your grumbling. 
And as Jesus goes on to say, the way that the Father draws people to Jesus is through instruction and through teaching. Verse 45 says that only those who have heard and learned from the Father go to Jesus. And so unless sinners learn from the Father, they are never going to understand who Jesus really is and go to him in faith. This is humbling, is it not? Thought of an example from our day and age to help us understand what these grumblers are doing. Suppose a doctor of rocket science is lecturing and explaining the intricacies of his field and something he says doesn't sound right to me and my friends who, we're not educated in rocket science. Now some of you are, but I'm not and my friends who are with me are not. Okay, and we start talking under our breaths about how we don't think that what he is saying is right. It doesn't make sense to us, and we scoff at his remarks. And I can picture him stopping his lecture, turning to us and saying, guys, please stop your grumbling and just listen. I can tell you disagree with what I'm saying, but I don't expect you to understand. I know your education backgrounds. You would need to study my field for years to be able to discern that what I'm saying is true. Isn't it true that for me and my friends to have grumbled as we did really reveals pride? It only shows we think we know more than we do. We have passed judgment on something about which in reality we have no clue. And so it is when sinners think they can use their own reason to evaluate who Jesus is and about whether or not they should put their faith in him. Man, apart from divine teaching and divine drawing, is never going to go to Jesus in faith. It's not a matter of the right evidence, not a matter of the right arguments. It's the, really a matter of a hardened heart being softened. And all of the grumbling about Jesus by unbelievers only confirms their spiritual darkness. Remember that at, in this point in the outline, I'm pointing out the how of seeking the true bread and what the text clearly teaches is that the how is all about divine intervention. There's perhaps no other statement in scripture that sets forth the total depravity of man more pointedly than this one. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Man is not just spiritually damaged by the fall. It's not that man is merely unlikely to come to Jesus. The reality is that sinful man will never choose to go to Christ for salvation unless the Father draws him. And that's because man, by nature, through the fall of Adam, is spiritually dead. The problem is that sinful man, after the fall, has a will in bondage to sin, a will by which he will never choose salvation in Christ except for a powerful intervention by God, which is called here a drawing. The word in the Greek is the same word used of the drawing of a bucket out of a well, the same word is actually used in John 12 of Jesus drawing all men to himself, that is, men of every race. It's used in John 18 of Peter drawing his sword and striking the high priest's servant. It's used in John 21 when it is said that a large net of fish was drawn or dragged ashore. The word used in, is used in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are dragged into the forum and in Acts 21 when Paul is dragged out of the temple. It's, it refers to activity that is irresistible. 
And in the case of God drawing sinners, the sinners don't initially have any desire to be drawn to Jesus. There's no desire to repent. There's no desire to trust in him. But if God decides to draw them, they are drawn. And in what is traditionally called the five points of Calvinism, summarized with the tulip of T-U-L-I-P, the I stands for irresistible grace. That's what our text is talking about. The grace of God in saving sinners is irresistibly effective when God decides to save sinners, when he decides to draw them to faith in Jesus Christ, they will be drawn, they will be saved. Now it's important to head off any misunderstanding. This doesn't mean that sinners are dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom. There will be no one who is in heaven who wishes that he was elsewhere. At the same time, it can happen that people go through a process in coming to faith. Some reject the gospel when they first hear it, but after time and struggle become convinced of its truth and beauty, eventually giving in. We'll be more about that in a moment. The necessity of the Father drawing us to Christ also doesn't mean that sinners are now excused of all responsibility to believe and are warranted to just sit back and wait for God to act on them. In other words, some people want to use their total depravity as an excuse for not coming to Jesus. And so they come up with various impossible scenarios that go something like this. They might say, like, I want to come to Jesus, but God hasn't decided to draw me, and so I guess I've missed out on salvation. Or, I don't currently want to come to Jesus, but now based on what you've just said, I'll just wait to see what God will do. But if I never come to faith, it's not my fault. After all, it's all up to God. In that first scenario, the sinner thinks that he can want to come without God's intervention, and that's just not true. Those who want to come to Jesus can know by that very desire that they have been drawn by God. And it's important to reckon with the fact that God does not hold anyone back from believing on Jesus. He leaves some sinners in their rebellion and spiritual darkness, but that is far different than him blocking the way of those who want Jesus. God never does that. If you want salvation, if you want forgiveness of your sins and are going to Jesus to receive righteousness, you will be received. The desire to come to Jesus is itself the work of God drawing you. And then the second scenario of the sinner blaming God for his lack of interest is really the same thing as the sinner blaming God for the fall and for our, for our sin. And God is not the author of sin. God never has and never will make anyone sin. It is our fault that we are totally depraved. When we sin, it's because we have chosen to sin. And only God's powerful, drawing, saving grace can give us spiritual life so that we go to Christ. It's because in Adam we plunged ourselves into spiritual death from which we cannot deliver ourselves. It's only God's irresistible grace that can free us from our own slavery to sin. Now, there are those who think that this drawing just makes salvation robotic. It takes away human responsibility. But there's actually another layer here to how sinners come to seek Jesus, another layer that's presented here in these verses. Verse 45 explains to us how this drawing takes place. And what is clear is that this drawing of sinners to Christ, it doesn't come like a lightning bolt zapping us into salvation. It's not like a rope that comes down and slips over our necks and drags us against our wills. But what God does is he 
instructs us. He teaches us so that we become convinced of who Christ is and of the salvation that he offers and we gladly go to him. What happens is that sinners are made willing so that those who come to Jesus do so as a willing decision of their own. So the how of seeking Christ then is a drawing by the Father, but a drawing by which the Father engages our hearts, our minds, our desires, and our wills with the truth of the gospel so that we come willingly to Christ, so that we want Christ, so that we want his salvation, we want the righteousness that he offers, and then willingly go to him for it. This instruction of sinners that is at the heart of how God draws sinners, it's set forth there, as I said, in verse 45, where it says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now we might wonder, well, what Old Testament passage here Jesus is referring to? And notice that he speaks of the prophets in the plural, which tells us that he's really setting forth a general truth, a principle taught throughout the prophets. The truth being that in the Messianic age, all of the citizens of the true Israel would be taught of God. That's how William Hendrickson in his commentary puts it. He puts it this way to say that again, that in the Messianic age, all of the citizens of the true Israel would be taught of God. We can point to a number of Old Testament passages from the prophets that support this statement. Um, but commentators point in particular to Isaiah 54, 13. I'm going to turn there a moment. Isaiah 54, 13. <clears throat> Which says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Uh, in this verse, God is addressing his people through Isaiah as they are envisioned in the future, having been restored from their captivity in Babylon. And what is being proclaimed is that future generations shall be taught by the Lord. And this is good news because the problem that led to their captivity was a refusal to listen to the Lord. There was a great hardness of heart among the people, but Isaiah presents the hope of a glorious future for God's people where the children are being taught by the Lord himself. And the implied result is that they will then listen to God they will put their faith in God's covenant promises and they will live in thankful devotion to him. God's word will bear fruit in their lives and the reason is because, as the text says, they shall, they shall be taught by the Lord. So you understand, not just presented with information and then left, it's left up to them to take it or leave it. No, they will be taught, scripture says. And we know from other scriptures that this Teaching of the Father is effectual because it's carried out in the heart by the Holy Spirit. When God decides to draw a sinner to Christ, God, the Spirit regenerates that sinner. And what that involves is an enlightening of his mind and true knowledge. It involves a renewal of his will so that he's persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. And Jesus says that this prophecy of, be, of people being taught by God is being fulfilled as God teaches sinners to believe in Jesus. 
you know, based on Jesus' application of this prophecy to the New Testament era, this prophecy's fulfill, fulfillment was not only for literal, physical Israel, the church of the Old Testament, but also for the church of the New Testament, consisting of anyone worldwide who puts their faith in Jesus. What is, it all, what is also an important component of this education by God the Father is that it is an education that is never divorced from Jesus. Verse 45, Jesus sets forth the truth that those who are educated by the Father come to him. So to listen to God and to learn from the Father is to learn about Jesus. And if you are really listening to God, you will go to Jesus, which tells us that the teaching of the Father as he draws people to Jesus is all related to the gospel, beginning with man's sin and need of a Savior. And when you learn from the Father or actually taught by the Father, you hunger for the righteousness that Jesus provides to all who come to him. What God teaches is that salvation is provided in Jesus in the way of sinners looking to him by faith. And so the education is about the good news of Jesus' saving work. And we know that the education, the learning, has actually taken place when people go to Jesus for righteousness. And that is not all. In verse 46, Jesus says some things that at first glance seem like they aren't connected. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He says that immediately after saying, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. We wonder what the connection is there. Some, many commentators say it's just verse 46 is parenthetical. But these words are actually very connected to what Jesus has just said about learning about God. What he is saying in verse 46 is that man is utterly dependent upon God. For God to reveal who he is and what he requires of us. There is not one of us who has seen the Father. Nevertheless, and here's the contrast with us, Jesus has seen the Father. He is from God. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that's Jesus. And that seems to be Jesus' point here. His audience needs to know that if they want to be taught by God, then they should listen to him, for he is from God. He is the bread from heaven. He is God's Son, the Word who was with God and was God. This means that it's impossible to be taught by God and ignore Jesus. To say you know God and yet don't know Jesus is a contradiction. Being taught by God always leads you to faith in Jesus. And so by way of summary, the how of sinners seeking Jesus is not by human reason and argument, but by the power of God drawing sinners to Christ by means of an education in the word, uh, uh, by his spirit, an education that centers in the gospel of Christ and issues forth in an eating of the bread of life by faith. That's the how. And that's the main thing here in these verses. But here for a few moments, let's consider also motivation or why you and and any and every sinner ought to look to Jesus as the bread of life. All through these verses, Jesus says, what is the result of believing in him? Verse 44, if you are drawn to Jesus, he promises 
to raise you up on the last day. That's a reference to the resurrection on Judgment Day. And while some will be raised to experience punishment in hell, Jesus is here talking about a raising up of his people, of those who have come to him, who will never be cast out. And so this is a raising up to the enjoyment of the fullness of eternal life. And of course, there's a lot here said by Jesus about the gift of eternal life, given as motivation to believe in him. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There's this contrast that is made between manna that people ate and then died And that's contrasted with the bread that he offers. He says of believing in him as the bread of life, verses 50 and 51, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 51 ends with Jesus giving us a metaphor within a metaphor That explains how it is that he gives life to those who believe in him. The first metaphor is that he is the bread of life. That's the metaphor that we've been focused on for a number of weeks. The second metaphor is that the bread is his flesh. And of course, this wording reminds us of the Last Supper, where he says of the bread that he is taking there at Passover, this is my body. But we notice that there he uses a word soma that means body. It means his physical body. And then he also refers to the wine as his blood. But here in John 6, the bread is his flesh. And the word flesh comes from a word sarks. That really means all of the human nature, body and soul. So Jesus foreshadows the giving of himself to the curse of the cross where he suffered in his soul the agonies of hell and in his body, the suffering and death of crucifixion. He says in verse 51 that his flesh will be given for the purpose of giving life to a world of sinners. This giving of Jesus' flesh was an offering of himself on the cross for or on behalf of all who trust in him. So Jesus is announcing that his death will not be the end. As God, Jesus will raise himself from the dead and he will prove his victory over death which will in turn prove that Jesus in his death satisfied the justice of God on behalf of all of those who would be given to him by the Father. Jesus has life in himself as the living bread. He's able to give unending eternal life to all who believe in him. And so the motivation to believe in Jesus is fellowship with God. Jesus' death on the cross was a vicarious, that is a substitutionary atoning death where he was suffering in his flesh all of the judgment that we deserve. His death is how he gives life. And so we end this section with the motivation to come to Jesus, knowing that through him we can be set free from our sins with nothing left to suffer because of his giving his flesh to the death of the cross. Yes, it remains true that you cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws you. But it is also true that if you have been taught by God to know that Jesus is the Son of God given to die for your sins and as a result of being in God's school you hunger and thirst for righteousness and are seeking it from Jesus in faith and you must know that God has drawn you. And then in coming to Jesus 
he will never cast you out. And once you have gone to Jesus believing in him, you have eternal life. This is a present reality, though it has a future component. You have fellowship with God now, but with the knowledge that in the future you will never be condemned for your sins, for Jesus has already given his life to that condemnation in your place. And what is future then is that you will be raised from physical death, you'll be perfected in holiness in order to joy, enjoy God's presence in heaven in both body and soul forever. This is the certain, the absolutely sure result of going to Jesus in faith. And this is a sure sign of having been drawn by the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we recognize through the text this evening that we cannot save ourselves. And the problem, spiritual problem, is so deep that we will never choose Christ. We will never go to the bread of life unless we are drawn. And Father, we thank you for the teaching that you bring about through your spirit, through your word, showing us our sinfulness, showing us our inability to save ourselves, showing us that Jesus is the Savior we need, that he is the source of righteousness that will, uh, will give us eternal life. And uh, Father, we thank you that you have drawn us, that you have shown us that Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust. Lord, we thank you for giving us this understanding that he is true God and true man, and that he is able and has fully atoned for our sins through his death on the cross. Father, we pray that you'll continue to draw sinners, that you'll continue to work in people's hearts. We pray that if there are any here this evening that do not know Christ, who have not accepted him as Savior, that, Father, you would be pleased to draw them, even this evening, through the Holy Spirit, teaching them in a way that they actually learn who Jesus is and learn who they are in relation to him. Give them a hunger and thirst for righteousness that Jesus alone can provide. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in a state of sin and misery, but coming to us in your grace. We give thanks and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.